the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology. Proactive and strategic IT. Welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm Paul Spain. Hi, I'm Bryce Boland. And I'm James Bergen. Welcome along, both of you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having us. Yeah, likewise. Now, Bryce, uh, for listeners that haven't uh, haven't heard you on the New Zealand Tech Podcast before, maybe you can uh, fill us in and where you fit in the technology world. Sure. So, I'm Bryce Boland. I'm the Asia Pacific CTO at FireEye. We're a cybersecurity and defense company, and we focus our attention on finding the attackers that are breaking in and helping companies protect themselves from the damage. That's pretty cool. Oh, thank you. And you're, you're a Kiwi based in Singapore, is that right now? That's right. I've been an expat now for quite some time. I've lived in the UK, Australia, Switzerland, and now Singapore. And quite convenient that you're uh, back visiting New Zealand. You're here on business or personal matters? Uh, a little bit of both. I've got a lot of business this week, but uh, I have a, a new daughter uh, who's three months old, Mia, and this is her first international trip. She gets to meet the family and the, the friends and uh, very much enjoying it. It's been a great summer here in New Zealand. That's interesting timing. I remember uh, we travelled with uh, my son Pablo when he was about the same, about three months old. We travelled to Japan, uh, to Tokyo, and there was an earthquake. Did you uh, did you catch the earthquake while you were here? <laughs> I did, yes. Uh, I wasn't in Christchurch, but uh, I was enjoying the, the sun up in, up in the far north. But uh, I did hear about the, the Christchurch earthquake, yes. Yeah, good stuff. And James? Yeah. Welcome back again. Thank you very much, Paul. And uh, where do you fit in? Um, well, I think, like I said last time, actually, I'm the, the chief architect for a, uh, a large tech company that's licensed and trusted to provide financial services. It's also known as ASB Bank. Uh, and I've, uh, I've been there for a while, so I sort of cover a lot of, uh, well, architecture, any kind of architecture that's not involving buildings, uh, a lot of technology strategy stuff, and increasingly some of our innovation and uh, innovation projects. Great. Well, Thank you both for uh, coming back on the show. Pleasure. Let's uh, let's jump in uh, to start with Bryce. I'm kind of keen to hear what's been happening at uh, at FireEye. I know we mentioned on the show a few weeks ago a little acquisition uh, you'd made, but you you mentioned there's uh, there's a couple of acquisitions. So your company obviously is is well funded and is doing okay to be going and uh, snapping up other players in this uh, security market. Well, it's a good opportunity to be buying technology companies at the moment. Uh, you probably noticed the market's dropped quite significantly, so a lot of the VC companies are looking to uh, exit uh, and make a profit from their investments. Uh, we were very lucky. We were able to acquire a company called Eyesight Partners, and Eyesight are a specialist in uh, identifying attackers and finding out about their plans, what techniques they're going to be using, and so forth. Uh, they've traditionally sold their intelligence to you know, law enforcement, uh, government agencies, and so on. And now with FireEye acquiring them, we're going to be able to integrate that technology, their intelligence, and all the information about attackers and what they're planning to do to do much more predictive uh, protection for uh, cyber against cybercrime. So that's, uh, that's really exciting news for us. Uh, we've acquired a number of analysts, including out here in New Zealand. So uh, that's going to help us significantly in our human intelligence, helping us protect customers. The other acquisition we made is a very small company. It's called Invotus, and Invotus is a security orchestration company. And if you think about the kind of challenge you have in running a large security environment, there's many, many moving parts. You might have firewalls and antivirus and log correlation systems and all sorts of technology for responding. Invotus gives us the ability to build response plans that are completely automated. 
So when you see an activity happen, you can collect all the information that's needed for a human to make a decision. The human can make a decision, and then that decision can be implemented through the security controls in a network automatically. So that really improves the, the time it takes to respond to a security incident. So we're really excited about that acquisition as well. Can you give us some examples of where that, uh, that, could, that might come in handy? Are there any sort of stories of, uh, that you can tell? Well, I've spent many, many years in security operations you know, fighting against cyber attackers from all kinds of environments uh, and some of the biggest banks in the world. And, and the challenge has always been that from going from an alert that there's some kind of a security problem to understanding all of the context and bringing that together and then kicking off all of the processes to, to block or to do a triage to understand what's happened with the attack, it takes a lot of time. And as an analyst, you know, you are a very limited resource. You've only got a certain number of hours in the day you can be productive. And this kind of technology just shrinks down the time it takes to do your job so you can be more effective, spend more time hunting for the bad guys and less time trying to find the information you need to actually do your job well. And so the reality is, is all the big organizations are dealing with these sorts of intrusions on a pretty regular basis? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, all of the big banks, all of the you know, larger organizations will tend to have a security operations team. That team, frankly, they're usually really, really busy doing a lot of things that you know, could be automated better. So this technology is one of these uh, products that's going to really allow organizations to improve their operational efficiency and get the security team moving from kind of responding and trying to work out what's going on to actually taking action to protect the organizations that they're defending. Sounds cool. Um, now, quite recently, um, there was a, there was a bit of a um, an issue at a Russian uh, bank. You want to run us through what uh, what happened there? Yeah, so there's a, a bit of a problem at at a bank uh, in in Moscow, and basically this this group used a, a Trojan to infect um, this bank called Energo Bank, and they were able to place nearly $500 million US in orders at non-market rates uh, in, the, in the exchange. And they were able to actually move the value of the ruble by 15% over a period of about 14 minutes. And this all started with an, an email spearfish that got some uh, a Trojan that gave the attackers access onto one of the computers. They then escalated their access in that network. And then they were able to gain access from there to some of the trading systems and start placing trades in the market. Now, and this all started on somebody clicking on a dodgy email. <laughs> yeah, as all of these things <laughs> usually dodgy. do start it. Um, I, I'm sure in this case, you know, they they wouldn't have uh, expected to see such a huge movement in the market. But probably what's more interesting would be to understand just how did the attackers monetize that? Because they weren't making any money by p- placing these trades directly. They would have had to take a position in currency in order to benefit from the movements that they created. Uh, I think this is probably a sign of things to come where attackers are actually uh, being more sophisticated in how they're monetizing using the financial markets uh, in order to make much larger profits and also to disguise those profits so that they can avoid things like any money laundering uh, checks and so forth. I guess we might see more uh, more things coming through sort of social media type channels as well. You imagine if uh, enough devices are controlled and enough people's social media accounts are controlled, um, then the right well the wrong sort of dodgy messages going out on social media 
um, can could lead to some change in uh, you know, share prices and oh, currencies absolutely. and well, so on in a, ex- in a similar sort of manner. But th- those have only been pretty small scale in the past, haven't they? Well, we've seen examples of this before, where you know accounts for Associated Press got hacked a couple of years ago, um, and this were attacked by the Syrian Electronic Army. And they announced that there'd been a, a, an explosion at the White House and that Obama had been injured. Yeah. This caused the, the stock exchange in the US to go into you know, free fall for a few minutes until someone got hold of that account, was able to post a correction. But you know, that kind of thing can absolutely happen today. Um, I think we're probably going to see more of that too. We've also seen a lot of attackers using uh, social media as a tool for communication. You know, anyone can enroll, anyone can create an account, anyone can listen. And so the use of some of these web-based services, social media accounts, as a communication tool is becoming quite prevalent. And it's a great way for attackers to bypass some of the other controls that have been put in place around maybe you know, web access, for example. Mm. And uh, the Lincolnshire Council recently, that was one that sort of hit the, hit the news. I think uh, BBC were reporting that... Uh, they got hit by some ransomware and were being asked to pay a million pounds to uh, to get their data back, which had been uh, encrypted or, uh, as I like to say, put through a digital shredder. Yeah, I, I think this is quite an interesting case of uh, the criminal underground starting to do a bit more segmentation of their target <laughs> market. Uh, rather than just asking for $500 or a couple of bitcoins uh, in ransom, they're starting to segment their their target population and, and ask for more money if they, they have access to it. In this case, I mean, it's unclear. There's been multiple reports that maybe the, the amount's changed, but uh, clearly if the entire council's computers have been encrypted and if they don't have a, a reliable way to recover, uh, then either they're going to be paying a lot of money or they're going to be paying a, a lot of dues to the public when they have to explain uh, how they lost all that data and what they're going to do about it. Well, I guess even trying to recover it back off backups if you're a large organisation with hundreds or thousands of uh, servers, that's, uh, that's a reasonably expensive thing to do to go back to uh, you know, where, you, where you were before this thing happened. Well, frankly, it's an expensive undertaking and most organisations that, that I look at simply don't have the capability to do a recovery well. Even if they are doing backups, they probably haven't tested them and often we see a lot of pe- people have moved towards online backups well, those same systems get encrypted by the attackers at the same time that the, the initial attack happens. So uh, doing recovery from an encrypted uh, r- ransomware encrypted backup isn't going to help you. So I, I think it's going to continue to be a, a big issue. We're seeing criminals really starting to uh, work out better how to target um, and how to extract the, the most money they can out of the victims. And so I think we'll expect to see more of that happening. Have you come across um, any instances with large figures that are sort of outside of the media? Anything that, that you can share? Uh, not with ransomware specifically. You know, usually we see uh, extortion more around uh, breaches of networks, uh, threatening to publish sensitive data, uh, the usual extortion tactics that you'd see. Uh, we've also seen, and this has been a, the, in the case for a number of years, uh, systems like exchanges, uh, get targeted quite a lot uh, for extortion. And uh, they're mostly prepared for that now because most of those extortion attempts are using DDoS. Uh, there's good protection against that now. Um, so I think we'll just continue to see the ransomware probably growing quite a lot in prevalence. It's a very effective technique for the attackers. So and the denial of service type attacks we've seen in the past aren't 
Aunt has um, um, hard to block as they were, were in the past? Well, there are very easily available services that you can use that, that can help mitigate those mm. threats. Mm. Um, so most organizations that have a large brand presence have already put in place protection at various levels. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're not you know, perfect. There's still ways to, to bypass and, and still cause damage, but um, there's probably less uh, low-hanging fruit, if you know what I mean, in terms of larger organizations that don't have the basic protection. But bypassing the perimeter defenses to get something like a, a ransomware technology into a company is still relatively straightforward today. Uh, unless an organization can detect that before it gets in, before it's detected, you know, clicked on by an attacker, uh, sorry, by a victim in the, in the company, uh, the attacker will actually you know, be successful. And then it's going to come down to whether or not you can stop it and, and recover or whether or not you just do, choose to pay the money. Good. And to avoid getting to that position where you have to pay the money and deal with the attacker, um, are you seeing education of uh, of people sort of raising in terms of importance? Does that uh, make much of a difference for organisation, educating their staff a little bit more around what sort of things to be cautious of? Obviously, it's only one of many uh, things that you need to do. Yeah, uh, there are quite a lot of organisations that are actually focusing on educating their staff. And I think we've actually seen education and awareness becoming a board-level issue as well. And once the board understands the threats, then they tend to be much more supportive of broader education for their, their staff. Unfortunately, uh, there's been plenty of well-publicized examples of education programs that, that don't work. And, that, and it's not that the education didn't work, it's just that the attackers are sophisticated enough to be able to fool pretty much anybody some of the time. And that's why you can't rely just on humans making good decisions. You also need technology to try to detect when these things happen. Absolutely. And you need to be able to actually respond when it does go wrong because, frankly, at some point it will. Yeah, good point. That brings us to you, James. Yes. Um, these things go wrong. Is that something <laughs> that, uh, you know, as a, as a bank you have, to, you, you, know, you have to put quite a lot of focus into as, as dealing with all sorts of uh, cybersecurity challenges? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think at the heart of... You know, I said that the, the intro in terms of us, you know, tech company, but licensed and trusted um, to provide financial services, you know, that, that trust takes a long time to establish and it can only take seconds to destroy. So I think we're, we're very conscious of that as much as, uh, as, much as anyone can be. Um, we've talked in the past also about how um, we're trying to build bridges and walls, whereas traditionally an organization, uh, a traditional bank would build, focus on building very thick walls um, and kind of uh, hoping that that keeps any bad guys out um i think then the, the new way of thinking is you absolutely want to build uh walls around the important stuff for the stuff you need to protect as much as you can protect them um but you want to establish um bridges um with toll gates and everything else for people to be able to come in in a safe and secure fashion and interact with you in a in a digital ecosystem so you know we have um we have some really, really impressive uh, people in our uh, security teams our operational security and information security teams um, and my team, some security architecture uh, resource as well, who are um, who are constantly looking at how we can, you know, do the best we can in terms of keeping things um, as safe as we possibly can. Um, but I absolutely agree. I think a lot of the times you you almost have to assume that uh, people will get in. So how do you then limit the impact of what they can do when they're in there? Um, and so it's it's those challenges. It's constantly evolving. It's a it's an exciting part of the industry. It's scary at the same time. 
Yeah, well, I mean, particularly when you're uh, you're dealing with a, a large amounts of uh, money, you pro- probably want to protect that to a, to a degree. I would have thought. I think that's a pretty 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 fair summary, uh, Paul. Yeah, and I think uh, obviously a lot of uh, a lot of organisations in my industry, you know, you don't need to convince anyone. You're talking about it being at a, at a board level kind of conversation, you know, the highest levels of our organisation um, and right across the entire organisation. Uh, there's that, that awareness that uh, that security is paramount, um, and, but it is a, it is a ongoing, like I say, evolving thing. What keeps you secure today doesn't keep you secure tomorrow. So it's mm. constantly having to evolve. Now, we heard, I think it was uh, last year, was a situation where Ubiquity Networks, a provider of uh, Wi-Fi devices, uh, made a large payment, I think in the direction of $50 million, uh, into what they thought was the bank account of one of their Chinese manufacturers. Right. Now, it actually wasn't, um, and uh, so they were out of, out of pocket yeah. accordingly. <laughs> Is that the sort of thing that, uh, banks can do much to sort of you know protect organisations because we, we've I mean we've seen so many of these situations recently. An email uh, lands in the CFO's inbox saying you know purporting to be from the CEO saying look we've just got an urgent need we need to transfer these funds into this bank account we'll sort the paperwork out later um, and. You know, to varying levels of success. There was uh, one of these was written up in the media, I think, uh, just before Christmas yeah. here in New Zealand, uh, of an organisation that got hit, and the uh, the CFO fell for it. Um, Any way you can help in those sorts of <laughs> situations, or did those things just sort of fall into the the stupidity camp, and there uh, uh, or the need for providing more training, uh, and there, there's. You know, just no way of clawing those funds back. I, I think I think training and, and education is, is is a very important part, um, no doubt. I think when we look at specific offerings that we have in market, uh, especially in our business uh, digital business offerings, um, we have features like two to sign, where you're bringing into the equation that even if you've managed to, you know, fool me if you like, um, I don't have authorization. I need someone else to sign it as well. So it's like the kind of internal control and putting layers in place. Um, and it's it's again it's trying to come up with um, that that constant balance right between security and convenience and and how do you provide more of one without compromising the other um, so I think in those kind of situations it is trying to pre- you know prevention is the best medicine um, and that I would say is education as well as technical functionality yeah and uh, what else is going on in the ASP world I think you uh, you mentioned that uh, well, last time we talked about domain names and these new shorter domain names we have in New Zealand. Oh, did, 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 did we, Paul? I, oh, I don't know. Oh, a, a customer feedback. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> no, that was something which we did mention. I know you talked about last time uh, um, with the shorter domain names. And um, uh, I, I went back and made sure, actually, that um, ASB.NZ um, does actually redirect. So we, we owned the domains. Um, it looked like they just weren't configured at the time, um, but they are now. So if you Thank want you to very save, much. You've saved me three, you three, three key presses uh, on a regular basis, so it's much quicker to get to your website now. There you go. There you go. You go visit that uh, award-winning uh, digital experience so much quicker and so much easier for you, Paul, just for you. Oh, thank you. Very kind. Um, now, last time we talked about the uh, the Clever Cash Box. Mm. Now, you brought one of these in again. It's a little bit further down the um, 
the development process. Yeah. So a, a quick update on the sure. um, this. What do you call it? A clever a, cash. A, a digital um, digital money box. Digital cashless pa- money box. Piggy bank sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So um, the clever cash for for those who aren't familiar is yeah. That's what we we're calling it as a, a cashless money box. And and um, you can go to um, clever cash. That's clever spelt the way you'd think clever spelt, and then cash with a K because of cash in our tie back. So clever cash dot asb dot and you can um, watch the video and see how it works. But in essence, it's designed to tackle the problem that emerges from money becoming less tangible. Uh, one of the problems that our customers have pointed out to us is it's harder to teach their kids about saving money when when you never have cash on you. <laughs> and so how do you teach them it's important to save something that's intangible? So when yeah, when I was last on the show, we'd, um, we'd just sort of just announced the, uh, the, the, the concept and had, had the, um, well, I guess you'd call them the alpha or the beta devices at that point. Uh, and now we're at the point where we're just starting to do our um, customer piloting. So it's great to be at the stage of the uh, development of um, of a device and an ecosystem, which everyone who sees it uh, to this date, I haven't had anyone say, "Oh, that no, I don't like that." <laughs> it's more that's amazing, that's awesome. When can when can I have it? Um, so we're uh, we're progressing that further, and we've gone to now some very lucky customers are starting to help us with piloting. And this is all part of us thinking like that tech company rather than us thinking we know best. How about we get our customers involved and get them to give us feedback and um, help iterate and turn this uh, this product into something something even more awesome than what it is at the moment? So yeah, very exciting times. Cool, cool. I'll well, we'll look forward to uh, having a play around with that at some stage. Sure. Um, I've got a son who's about the right sort of age. Need to start teaching him about such things as how, me. How, how old is your son, Paul? Uh, Pablo is five. He's five. Just, just just started school, so uh, well, according, he's according to the label on the box, it's uh, ages four plus. So you're in you're he, in the he, uh, he, he falls into the right <laughs> he category. Falls in the right category. Yeah, so. yeah. Good, good, good. And uh, yeah, I'm sure the school teacher will be uh, will be will be pleased for any extra education we can. Uh, uh, give him on uh, on his maths. We've so. definitely found it's it's been really interesting just as we've sort of started to roll out and talk with customers and get them to experience um, uh, the the particularly the payment ceremony. So for those again who aren't familiar, it's a you know it's a small elephant standing on his behind legs who has a screen in his tummy that reflects the balance of the account that's been synchronized to it. Um, but the synchronization is a very tangible um, process built into our mobile app and um, allows the kid to sit down with you and actually move the money off the phone. Um, and you talk about that maths thing. I mean, even I see it with, with, uh, with my kids and, and uh, my nine-year-old, you know, he'll get his, uh, his, his $2 pocket money and, uh, and, he'll, and he'll go straight to the 10 cents because he just wants to play it like a game, you know, and just <laughs> send all these across and he'll count as he goes. So you can push them, push them across. Exactly. Really, yeah. Yeah. And my like six-year-old's going coins. straight on the other hand, goes straight for the gold coin. Yeah, he wants to put the dollar coin in and see it gold and sparkly. So it's really exciting to see them, uh, to see kids um, really, you know, engaging with the process and then learning skills as as they go. It's great, great, really exciting times. Do you have you have you noticed as we've moved more to um, uh, digital transactions and so on that you know, do you, do you think people are, are losing their skills to be able to add things up? I'd notice it sometimes in retailers yeah. where there's a maybe a really simple sort of calculation, yeah. and uh, and they're they're going back to a device to try and you know add. Five plus five together, or yeah. or maybe not that simple, but <laughs> uh, but it, but it, but it can seem like that. I, look, I, I think um, I think yes. I mean, I, I I don't have the research to back it up, but just anecdotally, um, I think that um, it's easier to default to, um, you know, rounding up or, or or making trying to make the maths a bit simpler. Um, 
but you do get that sense of you're outsourcing an aspect of of your uh, of what we at least of your thinking, you know, yeah, yeah, of your thinking yeah. of what we grew up knowing. You know, your mm. basic arithmetic and things like that. Um, and you could see it as just a uh, well, it's just a reality of a of a digital world. Um, but at the same time, we're saying, look, we really need our kids to be involved um, and understand technology and and, and understand um, uh, you know f- their finances so that they end up having the good habits in play for when they're, they're older and therefore New Zealand Inc. benefits from it. And, you know, ASB has our GetWise program, which is, the, you know, one of the largest um, financial education programs um, in the country. And a lot of that is trying to teach kids those things which we were all taught, yeah? But the problem becomes that when you're starting to teach them and you're running out of the tools because they go, what's that What's that cash stuff? Like, I mean, it's not some, it's, it's there now, but it's only going to become more and more prevalent. So creating those tools to, so that they don't lose kind of basic skills you know i <laughs> still get to use them um that's all about tangibility for me that's all about connecting it to something and that i that i want to do cool cool now a few uh, sort of techie uh topics and news bits and pieces i was uh, keen to keen to chat through uh first up was this uh report that it came through some uh, u.s tech uh media uh i saw this at uh cnet and um the comment that robots could lead to fifty percent unemployment in thirty years—that seems quite a quite a long way off. <laughs> um, what what do you what do you guys think is going to happen? Well, like like all good predictions of the future that are a long way off, it'll probably the, be completely wrong. And the, <laughs> and the person will—they probably worked it out so that they'll be dead or, or near to it by the time. Uh, that year arrives, so it can be. I mean, I was expect I was expecting my flying car, my robot dog, and everything <laughs> a long time ago. And the Jetsons just it just didn't work Haven't out. Have you got for a me. robot dog yet? Well, I know some people have, but they're really they're not that cute compared <laughs> to the real thing. So not look, at all. I, I think we're we're probably promised a lot of these sorts of things quite often, and and we've seen uh, predictions of you know the end of work since the industrial uh, revolution took place, and it, what's happened is we've just seen the evolution of work. We've seen. What what we consider to be work today, um, for many of us, is something that would have been considered to be you know, completely foreign concept 50 years ago. And we were walking around with computers that are incredibly powerful in our, our hands, and we, we use them to communicate with people around the world. That's something that wasn't possible before. Is it work or is it leisure? You know, I, I, it's hard to to make that distinction now. And I think also you look at the younger generation. They're growing up in a world where they have choices about what kind of work they do, how they spend their leisure time, the kinds of things they use to create value. It's going to be very different, but I don't think it means that there's going to be no work in the future. It's just going to be a very different kind of concept. Do you think we'll be working a lot shorter days, shorter weeks? I I mean, I think that at any point, of any kind of revolution, whether it's the you know industrial or uh, you know any, any of the others, there's massive change that 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 we go through, and it's it's very hard to be on the other side of the information revolution and kind of look back and say, well, what would I have predicted had I been asked the question about what the impact of of arguably a revolution we're still going through, um, what impact that would have on on daily work? Um, you know, even when you're looking at the innovation space and you see people. Quoting examples of how we, how society had to change when the, um, you know, the horse and carriage came along, and then when, the, when when trains came along, and then when the car came along, and you start seeing these dramatic changes and what that meant for jobs of people who were, you know, horse and cart 
Mm. Or, <laughs> the one I like was um, talking about uh, ice delivery people um, before refrigeration. And, you know, you'd, you'd sort of they'd come to the apartments in, in New York and places like that and deliver their ice for the day. And, and then the next day and the next day and the next day, guaranteed work, right? Because the ice will melt. Um, and then along comes refrigeration. So I kind of look at this and similarly in terms of that prediction and say the Ray, Ray Kurzweil and others have said it's more about augmentation rather than replacement. And would, our, would the nature of our work change um, and to be shorter work days, as you say, Paul, because we are augmented like we already are today with technology, but even more, even more augmented. Um, I wonder if it's the opposite. I wonder if it's, well, not the opposite, sorry. I wonder if it's similar to, um, we're talking a little bit of the prep, you know, is, is gigabit Ethernet enough? Is, you know, is, is, is a terabyte of storage enough? And, and the answer is always no. Eventually we'll find something to fill it. So if, if what is taken up by your work today is a large portion of administration or, or work that can be automated, and that goes away, what, you're just going to start doing a 20-hour work week? I, I think more likely, uh, you know, human species has shown that it will fill the time with other things. And while some would like to say it will all be leisure-based, I don't know. I, I tend to think to the point around what's the definition of work, I think we'll find other things to, to, to do. I don't think we'll be sitting there twiddling our thumbs. I, I think it just gives us more scope and opportunity to be creative and find new things to do. And I, I think human beings, they're always yearning to find new things to create to find new lands to explore new opportunities uh, to make things better and so i think the more we automate the mundane and use machines and robots the better one thing that i do see a lot of is people foretelling that artificial intelligence is going to be the end of the world and they'll use examples like oh we've got computers that can play chess and computers that can play go and they equate that to some kind of intelligence but it's just following algorithms and it's following the algorithm of a game. And unfortunately, in life, the rules of our game of life are constantly changing and they are changed without notification. I've yet to see any computer system that can adapt to the rapidly evolving world that we live in and be able to come up with an optimal strategy to be successful. When that happens, yeah, then we're really going to be having difficulties. I, I, <laughs> I also hope in... And, and when you talk about making things better, Bryce, I think, I think I hope that we get to a point or that we're starting to see more of it now. We talk about social media revolution as being something that's sort of democratized the internet or, or trying to democratize access to information and, and all the benefits that that can bring. I mean, we're still as a, as a, you know, without getting too philosophical, but, you know, as a world, we're still very broken. You know, we still have total, we have inequality. We still have, you know, the, a really, really bad spread of um, wealth and poverty even within our own country. And so when you think about what could happen by having technology further enabling you know, better production of food or easier production of food, and while that may change some aspects of some, of some jobs, uh, of sort of like a capitalist um, wealth accumula- accumulation, what about the social good? So hopefully we can, as a, as a society, as a global you know, village, to use a hackneyed phrase, uh, use technology to better the whole world rather than just better some aspects of it yeah so rather than 3d printing the latest new gadget mm. what if we could 3d print houses for yeah. the poor and, and countries yeah. where they can't you know build yeah. quality houses. And nano nanotechnology nanofibers carbon nanofibers being used to filter water so you can you know desalinize water with no use of energy or you can you know clear out um, polluted water and use it for drinking water th- those kinds of things that's the stuff that gets me you know really excited rather than some of the doom and gloom that some like to focus on that's good that's good and what about our uh, our political systems and um 
uh, well, there's, there's, I guess, so many things that, that, that could be impacted. Do you think um, there'll be big big changes in those I, sorts of areas? I think the social impact, um, both positive and, and the, well, you know, it can be negative, but I think the change is, is going to be huge. I mean, you take some examples, artificial intelligence is one, um, quantum computing is another. And again, some listeners will know a lot more about that than I do. But in essence, if you talk about the, um, the impact that quantum computing could have in terms of the raw increase in computing power, that fundamentally changes cryptography that changes that you know we've based a lot of our security on it's very hard to figure out big prime numbers suddenly you can do that very very quickly so all encryption is just rendered useless overnight i mean you know no but in that world what does that mean for our society and security and the way in which we've built ourselves around certain things just being true that are now no longer true so i think there'll absolutely be upheaval um and and change and it's up to us to figure out how we use that change. You know, change can be for good or it can be for ill. And I just, you know, always the optimist, Paul. I'm always hopeful that we'll use it for good. Do you think we will, Bryce? I think most of us will. I think <laughs> my experience has been that there's, there's always a, a certain percentage of the population that will see the opportunity to take advantage of others mm. by leveraging any new technology. So that, that's been the case for thousands of years. The, the weak have always been you know, subjugated by, by those that have got better technology. And, and I think we need to be aware of that. We need to make good decisions about how we use technology, mm, try to limit the downsides and maximize the upsides for everyone. Absolutely. Now, in other news, um, drones, we heard about a, uh, a drone shooter in the US, a New Jersey man, um, who, um, well, he shot down a drone that was uh, hovering nearby his house, uh, and he has pleaded guilty to criminal mischief. Um, this, is, this is kind of curious, because we've, we've talked before about, you know, drone deliveries and, you know, what the future might look like with drones flying all around the place, whether it's delivering our uh, uh, pizza for uh, lunch or dinner, or whether it's delivering our order from uh, Amazon or trade me or what have you um from Whitcalls, who knows uh yeah lot, lots of things and uh it is something that does come up from time to time that thought well if there's all these valuable things flying around then uh, um there might be a little bit of mischief mm. um so i mean i i don't know what what rules and things will come into play and whether we'll end up with drones that can uh, defend themselves <laughs> and are uh, armed so so as uh when they're, when they're flying to their destination, uh, they, they can get there in one piece. Sounding a lot like Skynet. Uh, yeah. Yes, yes. I, um, I, I thought it was interesting that, you know, the charge is criminal mischief. Um, and, and reading through some of the story, you know, there's another example of a, a, a man in uh, Kentucky who, um, who merely admitted he'd shot down a drone because it was allegedly hovering over his house and he claimed it was spying on his sunbathing teenage daughter. And when you, when you look at it from that perspective and having you know, two daughters myself, you kind of sit there and go, well, actually, where is the mischief, right? Where is the, is the mischief on the person taking the drone out or is the mischief the drone itself? And you're starting to see this growing, I mean, I wouldn't say ubiquity, but the, you know, definitely growing adoption of drones. Um, and the nuisance factor has to be weighed up against the convenience factor. And we're in this kind of, ah, we've seen it before, right? The early stage of, of, of wider technology adoption. And we don't have the laws we don't have the 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 commonly accepted you know what's what's the commonly accepted practice what's what's polite with some of these things and i think to kind of your point before bryce you know there'll always be some people who will take advantage of any technology for uh, unfortunately um for less than um laudable means 
Um, and while that you can see some great things coming from uh, from drone tech, I think stories like this really make us go. You know, we've got to we've got to come up with some generally accepted practices along the same time, not just technology for technology's sake. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all about working out what what is allowable avigation. Uh, this is a word I only learned. Avigation. 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 Navigation of the air. Oh. Yeah. So if, for those of you who need to learn one new thing every day, <laughs> there you go. There you go. Tick. So there's been a lot of cases where you know drones have caused problems for people. There was a case recently where a gentleman flew his drone into the 42nd floor of the Empire State Building. And uh, he was arrested after reporting it and trying to recover it because he was uh, deemed to have caused a nuisance in navigation. And uh, th- this is probably just you know one issue. I-, I think there's quite a broad number of issues mm-hmm. in terms of what are we going to do about drones. Uh, there's all the the risks of them being used for delivery of non you know different types of. Uh, uh, packages you know there, there's more than one thing that could be delivered it doesn't necessarily have to be a book from amazon it could be anything um we we were watching earlier a video of um of uh, <laughs> a, a member of parliament of uh, new zealand uh, being accosted by a flying sex toy and um, it's possible that we could have such things being undertaken by drone delivery in the future as well uh, we also have the privacy issues and, mm. and you were speaking to that point earlier which is how do we how do we create a, a sufficient uh, barrier in your airspace for privacy? Mm. You know, is it okay if a drone is just hovering inches from your face all yeah. the time? Who is going to control that? What's yeah. the what's appropriate and what's not? It, it, it's one of the things. I mean, um, Trey Ratcliffe is a um, famous uh, photographer who uh, lives in Queenstown now and, and has taken some incredible photography using um, you know, phantom DJI. Um, uh, drones amazing stuff and some of the photography is taken you know you couldn't take without having some sort of uh you know aerial photography and he got it i remember he he wrote about it on his um stuck in customs blog about uh running into some challenges in the well-named forbidden city in china in terms of flowing flying up to get photos and and had to explain what was what was going on um and i sort of looked at it so the amateur photographer in me looks at it and goes wow look it's amazing look at these incredible photos but then the um amateur holiday maker in me who went you know went to fiji for the first time ever to an island a couple of years ago and we're there on the beach you know my wife and i and um there's this phantom just hovering over the um as in the drone not a ghost or something mm. hovering over <laughs> the uh hotel pool kind of thing and and you could just you know this is pristine beach you know the waves are rolling in and it's very idyllic and then there's this and so you sort of go and that guy was probably just taking some really amazing photos or just flying it because it's fun because he's just a hobbyist but you do get that sense of that balance and you go there isn't a social norm for this because model aircraft were you know you would you'd go out onto a field somewhere and that's kind of where you would fly it because the only thing you could do is fly it and it was the joy of flying but now you're getting drone racing and you're getting vr goggles and I saw one video of, a, of guys who put a styrofoam um, Star Destroyer from Star Wars yes. around one. Yeah, it looked it good, looked, didn't it? It looked amazing. You yeah, see the guy, yeah. I mean, that was out in a field. And you kind of go, ah, oh. so we're just going to have to find some way of dealing with it because it, it, it sort of falls in this gap between not just legislation, but social norms and practice as well. 
Yeah. Um, I was speaking with uh, Jason Hosking, who's been on the show before, another photographer. Uh, he recently awarded the uh, New Zealand Geographic uh, Photographer of the Year yes, Award. Yes, and, yeah. and some of that was for his photography work from, from a drone. And anyway, off the back of that, he's ended up on an expedition to Antarctica at the moment. Um, and I spoke to him just before he jumped on his flight or maybe between flights and, and heading to the ship. And uh, he highlighted that uh, he wasn't able to take his drone. They wouldn't let him take his drone oh, on the really? uh, on the ship. So, uh, um, yeah, sometimes these these controls come in. And I'm sure he would have just been absolutely gutted because the sort of uh, shots that you could get, sort of flying over icebergs and yeah. wildlife oh. and so on, would be yeah. would be amazing. I'm sure he will come back with some incredible, uh, you know, footage and and photos anyway. But. Uh, um, it, I, I could feel I could feel his pain though. Yeah, especially if that helps, <laughs> yeah, that will help him get him there. I, I think um, you know there seems to be like a common theme if you look through science fiction, whether it's you know I don't know Blade Runner or Terminator or, or Futurama, right? That the sky is just filled with these lanes of things, whether that's people or drones <laughs> or whatever. So it's it's almost like we've acknowledged it in our fiction that we see future, we can extrapolate out and say we are going to have more things in the skyline than what we have today. Um, but writing about it, you know, visualizing it, making jokes about it in TV is very different from, oh, oh that's now. Oh, 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 okay. Well, we better, we better come up with a plan and we better do something about it. So. There's definitely some things to be uh, figured out. I was reading in the article on CNET that uh, when there were uh, wildfires in uh, California yeah. last summer, uh, people were flying drones over to have a little bit of a look, get yeah. some cool footage and so on, but um, they probably hadn't thought through the consequences and that was apparently hampering uh, the helicopters that were going in and trying to uh, douse, yeah. douse the flames. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm sure you know, quite often these, the impact is probably une- unexpected or you know, it's not, not being considered. Yeah. I think also you know, we, we talk a lot about drones as these things that are flying in the air. There are also drones that go in the water. In yeah. fact, I saw a drone recently that can fly, can land on the water, and then fills ballast tanks with water, turns the uh, the rotors, and then turns into a submarine. No. And so, and then it can uh, glide back up to the surface later. It can unload the ballast tanks. Uh, turn the, the propellers around and it can actually take off again. Wow. So I, mean, I think we're going to see even more uh, creative uses of these uh, technologies in the future and it's just going to create more and more of these challenges of working out what's the social norm. Yeah. I mean, when you're a surfer <laughs> and you're, you're tr- you've got your drone trying to follow you and take camera shot, uh, you know, footage of you surfing that wave, but then there's another surfer and it gets in his way and blocks the wave. I mean, is he allowed to shoot your drone <laughs> from his surfboard? And how does that going to work? Yeah, there's, uh, there's probably a few challenges ahead, I'm, I'm sure, that we, that we haven't all considered. Um, a couple of other bits of news. Uh, we here in Australia, uh, Telstra, um, they had some they had some troubles uh, last week, so they made uh, last Sunday a free data day. You could download as much as you wanted uh, via your mobile device, and so they did um, one thousand eight hundred and forty one terabytes of data over their uh, mobile network last Sunday. Uh, sounds like quite a bit of data. Um, it was apparently only double what they would do on a normal uh, normal Sunday. It does, it does sound like a lot of data, and I think it yeah. kind of plays back to some of what we were saying before, that you know, 
terabytes in one day. You know, if you were saying that kind of number ten years ago, people would be blown. No, away. one thousand eight hundred. Oh, and forty. Yeah. Oh, you're you're. Oh, sorry, one thousand. Oh, sorry, eighteen hundred and forty. Yeah, I'm yeah. saying so. One point eight terabytes. If you think about that as a fraction of right, of the yes, yes, yep. one point eight terabytes. If you said that ten years ago, people would be like, I can kind of get my head around it. Mm. And you say eighteen hundred and forty-one terabytes, and people would like, I don't what. And you say eighteen hundred and forty-one terabytes a day in one country, and you start getting this this this, this scale of magnitude. Yet we'll listen to you can listen to this podcast when we do the sort of the retro playback in five years time, and we'll yeah. be saying, "Oh yeah, I, well that's is that, that someone's downloading themselves onto their own personal, <laughs> you know, virtual reality deck or something." And it's it's um, just kind of what you were, what we were saying before around the um, the prediction thing is like anytime anyone makes a prediction th- that is based around some some projection of well that'll be enough, yeah, a gigabit internet will be enough, or you know, terabytes will be enough, that'll be enough, that'll be enough. No, it won't. We find a way. We find a way even in one day to download. That's a staggering amount of information. Well, you know, I remember one megabyte of RAM should be more than anyone yeah, should ever need. 64K. And, and, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I read uh, one chap decided to take advantage of it and went a bit nuts and downloaded uh, half a terabyte him, himself and individually through his mobile device. Uh, just see how much he could uh, he could get across the mobile network. Which he- comes back to the previous example that there's always someone who will. I mean, it's the same thing with every unlimited use plan, right? And That's you've got right. the telcos are all sitting there going, ninety nine point nine percent of the user base are not going to be a problem. But that point one, oh, that point one. What's <laughs> funny though is he, he got the traffic for free, but I'm sure he had to spend a lot more money than his plan would cost to store that. Data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, so some yeah, some cur- cur- curious uh, things there. There was there was one bit about it that stood uh, stood out to me. Uh, now I'm trying to remember what it was. So I might have to, might have to come back. Everything's back to bigger that. in Australia, isn't it? I mean, yeah. <laughs> what would that what would that number look like in New Zealand? Well, the, no, the bit I was curious about. That's right. Was what sort of impact that would have? Because we hear that look, you can't give massive amounts of data to people on a mobile network. Uh, because it's just not going to be able to handle it. Uh, and this chap that downloaded lots of stuff said, yeah, he was getting really good performance. He gets uh, 129, uh, he was getting 129 megabit connection uh, when he started. Um, but by the end of the day, it was, uh, it was slowing right down to something like a, a um, it's about 30, 30, megabit. 30 megabits by it's the time he got to 10 p.m. Um, that evening, which, yeah, it's, it's not it's not a bad speed, but I guess it does highlight if people go nuts with their usage, then it uh, um, it will drop down, and that was with double the usage in a day. So you imagine if they wound that up to sort of ten times, people using as much over a mobile network as what they used mm-hmm. over a fixed network, uh, the mobile network would probably really start grinding at that point. Maybe you'd be back down to you know sub ten, sub five, maybe sub sub one megabits. So. There are a few limitations there, I guess, when you've got that shared bandwidth. Uh, now, the other bit was uh, we've had a little bit of an update from uh, from the government around the ultra-fast broadband initiative in New Zealand. A few stats released. And the big, the big uh, shout-out from uh, Communications Minister Amy Adams is connections to the ultra-fast broadband New Zealand's uh, Fiber optic internet network up by one hundred and thirty five percent on um, on a year ago to I think one hundred and sixty two thousand connections and um, I, I'll be I'll be one of them hopefully I've got uh, I've got my nearly my there chorus con- consultant consultation next week 
and then uh, I think they installed it soon after that. So it's great to see it coming to my neighbourhood. Um, I know that it's been um, well. It feels like it's been a long time coming, but I, then I look at the rollout plan for some even some neighbouring neighbourhoods, and you know we're just here in in, in the city, and um, bit bit of wild wait yet. But looking forward to it. Um, that was until uh, we were having a chat in the in the pre in the pre show, Bryce, about what it's like in Singapore. <laughs> sure. So I was looking forward to my hundred meg, 50, hundred meg down, fifty meg up. Hundred meg, I can't even downgrade to a hundred meg. I think <laughs> <laughs> the this last speed I can get is two hundred meg, and uh, yeah, and, and the, the price is pretty reasonable too. But it's a very different landscape in Singapore. Yes, yeah. No, so. To be to be fair, I mean, I think it's it's exciting to see, and I think it's exciting to see the the um, that the growth, one hundred thirty five percent. That growth is, you know, they must be pleased with that. Seeing it starting to ramp up. And I think it's quite impressive to see that kind of rollout taking place in, in such a geographically difficult country mm. as New Zealand. You compare that to the National Broadband Network in Australia and its challenges in rollout. I, I think uh, New Zealand have really done a great job there rolling this out. Mm. I mean, it's, it's tricky stuff. I know that I've had, you know, friends of mine have had it installed and, you know, they've had, you know, trenches cut in the driveway and, you know, new cement. I mean, it's not because they can't always pull through the old copper. It depends on, you know, the quality of the conduit tricky stuff um and to sort of see that see that kind of cut through starting to come um yeah i think i, I think the the plan had it was about 40 percent, 43 percent of auckland uh, of what they're planning to cover has now been um enabled which is um which is which is great and yeah i mean i'll 60 percent of the yeah of the total uh, the total coverage so the, the initial target for the ultra fast broadband deployment is 75 percent of the population right and yeah, sixty percent now have that access. Should they choose to go ahead and and install it, and of course, more and more people are, are going ahead and installing it. Well, I'll report back after after my installation, Paul. You know if it's uh, if it's good if, enough. If it's good enough, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I must admit, we got very used to it very quickly here um, at the at the office, and uh, yeah, it's 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 very hard to go back once you start taking advantage of it. Yeah, you know, particularly in that business context where there are so many things that you couldn't do before you had it that that suddenly become available so yeah we we see i mean at, at asb we we do a lot of um uh, video conferences in between our different buildings even here in auckland and um you know our technology center versus the um the head office down there in north wharf and uh, you know the quality and that's obviously using business links and symmetric and a whole bunch of other things it's not quite the same as consumer but you do get the sense of how how even in, you know three or four years ago when we were starting to really use the technology, um, very low adoption internally. To now, it's almost second nature for a lot of people. Like there wouldn't be a day where I wouldn't have three or four, you know, of my meetings with someone videoing in, and and it's just becoming normal. And the quality of the video is you know it's not like your average Skype call. It's you know it's very very good, and you start to get that sense of how customers and others could talk to us over their own connections and how the quality could be very very high. Um, and how that's very realistic, you know, it's not something that's so futuristic anymore. Yeah, I think um, people are coming to to expect the results that yes. you you, yeah. you get, uh, particularly with that uh, that video. In fact, I was talking with somebody today who has been unable to get it in their their building, I think, due to the landlord, and they were talking about some challenges that they uh, they have on their Skype for business calls. Right, and uh, you know, most likely it's because they don't have that access to uh, to fibre at this this stage. Uh, now, a quick update on the uh, the inaugural Asia Pacific Podcast Conference that we held uh, last Friday and Saturday uh, turned out to be a pretty terrific event. Uh, we had uh, people from uh, US, Australia, 
uh, and varying parts of New Zealand. Um, and we hopefully will soon have uh, access to that content online. So anyone is, who missed the event but is in, interested in uh, hearing what was said there, uh, there'll be there's virtual tickets on sale uh, at Asia Pacific Podcast Conference dot com. Uh, in terms of learnings for me and the New Zealand Tech Podcast, there are a few prods in different directions. Uh, the main one uh, was that we really should be monetizing this podcast and, uh, and having a few sponsors, and that, that might help with one or two of the challenges that, uh, that I get, uh, such as trying to get the podcast online uh, late on a Tuesday night so that everyone gets it consistently on a Wednesday morning. Uh, and that uh, if we were monetizing, it would be much easier for me to outsource that for, to somebody else to make sure it was uploaded regularly. Uh, so you might see, uh, yeah, I hope you'll see the, this podcast going online more consistently th- throughout the year. Uh, and we'll be pushing and promoting a, a few products that uh, that we've tried that we think are actually pretty cool out there. Uh, so I'm going to start that this week by uh, a couple of things. One is highlighting Gorilla Technologies uh, cybersecurity training. So if you've got staff who you think aren't very good at knowing what what emails to click on uh, within your organisation, or maybe their uh, password policy, uh, their their following of uh, password policy guidelines isn't very good. They might be able to do with some uh, cybersecurity training. Uh, so to find out about that, visit uh, gorillatechnology.com slash cybersecurity. And if you're looking for somebody to uh, to host your website uh, and you're looking for something that's sort of flexible for, say, hosting uh, WordPress, then we can recommend one option is DreamHost. And uh, you can get access to a discount to try that out at nztechpodcast.com slash DreamHost. All right, well, that's us for this week. Um, Bryce, where would people catch you online if they're wanting to... Uh, uh, connect. Well, if you want to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at Bryce Boland, and you can reach me on email, Bryce.Boland at FireEye.com. Excellent. And James? Uh, yeah, yeah uh, Twitter um, at James Bergen, B-E-R-G-I-N, um, or JamesBergen.com to sort of uh, tumble a site where I clicked it all. Um, and uh, obviously, ASB.NZ. If you wanted to, excellent, <laughs> excellent. ASB and then uh, clever, clever cash again was clever C L E V E R and then cash K A S H dot ASB If you want to check that out, excellent. Well, that's us. Until next time, thank you everybody for listening in, and uh, yeah, we'll catch you again next week on the New Zealand Tech Podcast. And if you're looking for more podcasts, of course, go to podcasts.nz for a bunch of other cool podcasts. All right, see ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.